Well, I want to say thank you to Trevor and the team. Those are absolutely beautiful songs that you guys led us through, so thank you so much for that. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the elders here at Berrien Center Bible Church, if you haven't had a chance to, to meet me. <laughs> um, I have the privilege, privilege of sharing scripture with you this morning. Uh, before we get started, though, I just want to once again uh, submit ourselves to prayer. Jesus, um, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit down and that you would fill me with your presence. This is your word, and we want to respect it and treat it as such. And I just pray that your words would flow from me, that they would not be my own, um, and that whatever you have to speak to the hearts of our people, um, that our hearts would be receptive to it and uh, that we would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so we are going through the book of Colossians together as a church, specifically focusing on transformation of heart. And so we are really going to hone in on that this morning. Um, again, the, the key verse is at the beginning of Colossians that says, uh, this same good news that came to you, the Colossians, is going out over all the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. There's that heart transformation. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So today we're going to tackle uh, the next segment in Colossians, which is going to be chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. So I'll let you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to that uh, segment of Scripture. Um, and then if you guys have an, an electronic Bible, um, the Bible I'm using today is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So if you wanted to jump over to that, it'll be more exact to what I'm, what I'm reading here, okay? Um, the, these passages of Scripture, there is a lot in them, and I don't have time to actually cover the full scope of what, of what we're going to read here this morning. I'm only going to get through about half of it, and I was joking with my wife that you guys are going to get like three mini-sermons. So if you're a note-taker, pull, pull out your, your paper and your pen, because we're going to be writing fast and furious this morning, okay? All right, so let's read together Colossians 2, verses 8 through 23. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah." Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. He, God, triumphed over them by him, Jesus. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with the growth from God. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if, you're, as if you still belonged to the world? 
Why do you submit to its regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Last week, I loved the message that we went through because the main thing we talked about was getting back to the basics. I feel like Paul does that in Colossians. And even today, I want to get back to the basics. We're going to have some deep dives, but ultimately what we're trying to do is get back to the basics, that if you, believers in Christ, walk in Christ just as you received him, continue to walk in him, getting back to the basics. Let's do that together. So our first mini-series is about Don't Get Robbed. Where, did, where was that in the scripture? Go back to verse 8, and it reads this way. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. That word there, captive, is, actually comes from a Greek word that is sula gogeo. And that word has this picture of like pirates coming and stealing. Okay? So, there's two ways that this word can, be, can translate in the text. One is, don't let these people, these, these people who are offering you philosophy, these people who are offering you human traditions, don't let them rob you of the gospel. Don't let them steal Jesus from you. Or it could be more of like, you personally are the object being stolen. Don't let these people steal you. In other words, I shared, Paul, I shared the gospel with you, and these people have come along saying, actually, there's a better way to do this. Why don't you come follow me? Oh, okay. And they're like, ha-ha, little notch in my belt right there. Got another trophy around my neck. Don't let these people steal you. Don't let these people steal the gospel away from you. Don't let them steal Jesus away from you. Okay? So what was it that Paul was warning against? In the, in the passages, he's, uh, as we read through it, we, he, we see him say things like, the philosophy of the day, empty human tradition and regulations, ascetic practices, which basically means some form of self-denial or some form of self-harm in an effort to attain a higher spiritual state, worship based off of angelic revelation. Paul says at the very end, he says, although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, these things will rob you of heart transformation. Okay? So Paul's dealing with two main things here during his time. He's dealing with something on the Greek side, the Gentile side, and he's also dealing with something on the Jewish side. Again, how Paul worked is he traveled throughout the area. He would visit the Jewish synagogues first. He would share the gospel to the Jewish people. They usually would reject him. So then he would reach out to the Gentile people who overwhelmingly accepted the message of the Messiah. And so after he leaves, there are two ideologies that come in that try to disrupt the gospel that Paul has shared with them. On the one side, again, the Gentile side, you have Greek philosophy, specifically Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, boiled down to its basic tenet, is that matter is evil. This flesh you have is pure evil. And we need to get back to the divine spark that's inside of us. If there's some way to peel back this material world and get into the spiritual world, to get into that which is eternal, that truly is going to be enlightenment as in a person. They would even go, go so far to say is God of the Old Testament created this material world 
Therefore, God of the Old Testament is evil. But Jesus, Jesus is a spiritual being. Yeah, 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 I know you heard stories that he came down as a man. That didn't really happen. He actually came down as some sort of spiritual apparition and taught people here on this earth. And so we're following him in this spiritual realm because spirit, spirit is good, and therefore we follow Jesus in that way. Paul's having to deal with this. On the other side, you have you know, the people from the Jewish synagogues who are like, ha so you, th- you want to follow Jesus the Messiah, do you? Well, you do know that the Messiah is a Jewish concept, so if you're going to follow the God of Israel, there's a few things you should do. Number one, you Gentiles need to get circumcised. <laughs> Have fun with that one. Then after that, we need to t- teach you festival traditions. We need to talk about the regulations of the law that were handed down to Moses, and you have to keep all of these things if you really want to serve the God of Israel. So Paul's having to deal with that on this side. And he talks about how these things that they're trying to get them to do on this side are actually simply shadows pointing to the substance, which was Christ, which was the Messiah. I wish I could dig down deeper into that, but I don't have time this morning, okay? So maybe, maybe sometime in the future we can talk about that. But those are the two things that Paul is dealing with. When I thought through, what if Paul was alive today? What if he were writing a letter to the Colossians? What if he was writing a letter to Berrien Center Bible Church? What sorts of things would he be warning us about in regards to philosophies and human traditions? And these are some of the things that I thought of. And these are not everything. These are just a few of the things that I thought of, okay? So one would be humanism. Now again, in our culture, we're turning away from God and we're saying, okay, God doesn't exist. Well, if God doesn't exist and you look at this material world, this universe as it's created, who then becomes the top dog? We do. We are, of the, we are the highest species on earth. So humanism is a, is a lot of focus on humanity and how we can continually improve ourselves and make ourselves better. And we're going to add to that evolution, because that's how we got, you know, got to this status in the first place. And so we're going to continue to evolve. And we may, without the spiritual side of things, become gods ourselves if we aren't already. Paul would probably warn us about that. What about Eastern philosophy? Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that every single piece of Eastern philosophy is bad, because there are some things that they actually capture onto a nugget of truth that Scripture scripture highlights, but there are many things that Eastern philosophy does not follow Scripture with. One thing, you know, some Eastern philosophies believe in polytheism, that there are many gods. Definitely a no-no. There is no God but but the God of Israel. They would also say that you can, you know, better yourself, make yourself a better person. You can achieve enlightenment and eventually be a part of nirvana, reach some sort of form of godhood, well, we definitely would not follow that in regards to Scripture. So that's what I mean by he might warn us against Eastern philosophies and the path that it would steal us from the gospel. He might warn us about things like the gay agenda or um, about uh, gender identity issues. For me to be able to stand up here and say, you know, I've decided that I'm a woman now. I've decided I'm going to have sex with a man. Like, in, in our circles, that would be really weird for someone to stand up here and say. But I want you once again to, to think through the world's perspective. If God doesn't exist, which means that his laws don't exist, which means that you are not created in the image of God anymore with a specific purpose and design, then naturally, if you're just a human being trying to figure things out on your own, what keeps you from saying, I was created the wrong gender? What keeps you from saying, I can have sex any way that I want to? There is no standard when you remove God from the equation. So Paul would warn us about this. Don't let them steal you away with these ideologies. The last thing that I'll bring up, because again, there's so many more. Our money says, in God we trust. 
do we? More and more, we become atheistic in our thought process. God does not exist. So if God does not exist and humans are the highest standard, what then do we trust in? Science. Paul would warn us against that. Not that there's anything wrong with science. God created science. But if that is our hope and our trust, it is a faulty one. And we saw that in our culture with COVID, a lot of people relying on scientists and doctors. Again, I'm not saying right, wrong, or indifferent, the things that were being said, but notice our culture's thrust was not, in God, not to God, but to science. Okay? So again, I could talk about each one of those and make them their own sermon, but I want to move on because I want to get down to the root of the issue. What is Paul, when he's warning against these things, the, the philosophies and the human tradition, what is he really warning against? And to, to draw this out, I want to I talk about a few scriptures, okay? So again, the root of the problem, we're going to go through a lot of scripture here. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I want to read this together. I want you to see this with your own eyes. That if we're not going to worship God, if we're going to follow these things, what the root of the issue is that we're actually worshiping our imagination. Let's read through that together. Romans 1, starting at verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is why God delivered them over to the degrading passions, for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males, in the same way, also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own person the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Let me read from Acts 17. Paul says, You shouldn't think that the divine nature is an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Psalm 73, speaking of the wicked, The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock 
and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. And God spoke of Israel when they were rejecting him, said, these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules. So what is the root of the problem? We're worshiping our imaginations because the, the heart is truly the problem here. The heart is where we ask the deepest soul-searching questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And if God is not a part of the answer, if we reject God, then the heart must create its own answers to that question. So whatever their minds can come up with, whatever their imaginations can come up with, evolution, we humans are gods. We trust science. Whatever our imaginations can come up with is what we end up worshiping. But the problem is rooted in the heart. Again, these philosophies and human traditions are robbing us of the gospel. It's robbing us of heart transformation. Therefore, the solution is the heart transformation itself. So we're going to talk about that more here in just a second. But I want to pause, and I want to, I want to kind of conclude this first mini-sermon by asking, is there anything stealing you away from the gospel basics? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Is it bringing you to Jesus in Scripture, or is it taking you away from it? Where is your heart? Is it surrendered to doing life God's way, or are you more interested in approaching God your own way? That is very dangerous, okay? Again, I wish I had more time to go into that. So let's talk about our mini-sermon number two, which is the circumcision of the heart. Now, before I get too far, let me talk about circumcision, because that plays a factor into what Paul's dealing with here, okay? So I'm assuming everyone in the room understands what circumcision is, but where did it come from? What is the root basis of it? So Abraham is where circumcision came into play back in Genesis. So we're all familiar usually with the, the story of Abraham offering Isaac, who is the promised son. And there's a whole shadow in that that I wish I could go into, but I want to reverse. I want to go back. I want to rewind. If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is being selected by God, and he tells Abraham, I am choosing you through which I'm going to work to bring about the nation of Israel, and also through which I'm going to bring this seed, this promised one, this Messiah. Abraham, I'm going to do that because I promised back in Genesis 3 that a seed was coming that was going to undo what Satan did in the garden. And now you are going to be the person that I'm going to work through. And it says that Abraham believed God that he was going to be granted a son of promise, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Faith. Faith makes God smile. It's what he is pleased in more than almost anything else. And so you have this moment when Abraham is being given a promise that a seed is coming, and he believes God, and faith is thrown into the mixture, credited as righteousness. Now, if we go forward a little bit, Abraham gets a little bit despaired, because like a, a decade or so kind of goes by before Isaac actually is born. And so Sarah and Abraham kind of take things on their own. A Abraham ends up with Ishmael. And when Ishmael is about 12 years old, God says, all right, let's revisit this promise. And Abraham's about 99 years old at this point. He says, all right, this, the promise is still intact. The promised son is still coming. I'm going to work through that seed, but I want to initiate circumcision as a covenant, as a sign. Now, in Scripture, whenever God talks about a sign, you want to pay attention. What is that sign for? That was, circumcision was a sign with Abraham 
for Israel that no other nation is doing this. No other nation is doing circumcision. We're going to start this with you. This is going to be a way to set you apart from all other nations. But it's also going to be a sign revolving around the seed promise that from generation to generation to generation, as you are circumcising your males, it is reminding you that a seed is coming in one of those generations. Circumcision that becomes a shadow that's fulfilled in Christ. So then now let's read through Colossians 2, where Paul is, is dealing with this concept of circumcision. So flipping back to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read through verse 9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been fulfilled, sorry, you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, putting off the body of flesh, but in the circumcision of the Messiah. I'm going to pause real quick. I'm going to crush on Paul a little bit. I love Paul because he can, in a sentence, like really rack your world, okay? And so he does that in verse, uh, uh, verse 9 here. Um, he says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Do you remember him dealing with the Gnostics over here? Christ didn't come as a person. He's like, yeah, he did. He came. The fullness of God dwelt bodily in man. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. Mic drop. Wait, that's 200%. You're right. You're welcome. Okay? That's how it is. But then he's also dealing with circumcision. And he's saying, guys, circumcision in and of itself was simply a shadow pointing of the things to come. What truly is important is the circumcision of the Messiah, the circumcision of the heart, which is in reference to the removal of sin from that heart. So I want to walk you guys through a couple, or lots of verses, we're going to do lots of scripture, but I want to walk you through that just so you can see, what did God mean when he was talking about a circumcision of heart? Because the, all of the scripture I'm about to share with you is Old Testament in nature. This is something even back then, God had a plan for circumcising the heart, okay? We're going to look through Deuteronomy and uh, Ezekiel, and they'll be on the screen here. But the first thing, you know, we got this concept of circumcision of heart, but how is the heart circumcised? And the first thing I want you guys to realize is the circumcision of heart only occurs by God. God is the one who does it. It is not an action of yourself. You cannot circumcise your own heart. For those of you who are Chronicle of Narnia lovers, my favorite imagery of this is when Eustace gets turned into a dragon, and Aslan takes him to a pool and says, you got to get in. He's like, but I'm, I've got the dragon's skin. He's like, yep, take it off. And so, and so Eustace three times tries to peel off the skin of the dragon because dragons are reptiles. And he's got you know, that set off to the side. And he's like, I can't, I can't do it. And Aslan, said, Aslan says, you have to let me do it. And so with a single swipe, he gets right to the core of Eustace and was able to peel off the dragon. And Eustace went from dragon back to human again. God has to be the one to do the circumcision of heart. But the circumcision of heart um, happens through faith, by God, through faith, by obedience. Now, I want to pause there because I don't want people to think that I'm adding something to faith. I am not. Let's flip that around. If someone were to be in this room and tell me, my good deeds outweigh my, if, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I can get to heaven, I would tell you that is absolutely false. It is a lie. And I would beg you to please let that mentality die today. Scripture is very clear that, the, that all of us have sinned, all of us has fa have fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of our sin is death. One sin equates death. There's no ifs, ands, or buts around that. No amount of good that you do will undo the bad. None. 
let that mentality die today. It is through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that we put our faith in him. His blood is applied to our heart. That is what deals with sin once and for all and how we are saved. So then why am I talking about faith with obedience? Because James is very clear when he shares with us that also faith by itself is dead. Okay? Not to say that it doesn't save us, it does, but he's saying faith must be accompanied by action, which is obedience. Those two must be married together. Okay? This is, I'm going to show, share with you something that Jesus said to um, uh, the, the leaders of his day. The religious leaders got together and he said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. The first son said, I will not. But later, he changed his mind. Do you see that heart transformation? He changed his mind, and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He, answered, he said, go, work in the vineyard. And the second son said, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? The first one. That's what the religious leader said. So as believers, yes, we put our faith in Jesus. But if all we say, if all we do sitting in this room is says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and Jesus says, all right, I want you to go. I want you to share the gospel. I want you to do this. And you're like, no. Wait, what? Those two don't go together. If we believe that Jesus is our Lord and he asks us to do something, yes, Lord. That should be our response. Faith and obedience coming together. So let's read through scriptures, and I've highlighted a, um, a few places where God is talking about this, this heart transformation, the circumcision of heart, where faith and obedience are kind of co- uh, joined together. So this is, again, we're doing Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. This is Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord was devoted to your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 30 reads this way. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and cursings I have set before you. Pause. Moses has just gone through a whole list of blessings and a whole list of curses. Specifically, he's just gone through the curses that say, if you reject God and turn your back on him, he's going to evict you out of the land as punishment. So then he's coming here. When when all these things have happened to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you today, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him and all, with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I am giving you today. Then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the ends of the earth, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey him and follow all his commands I am giving you today. The Lord your God will make you prosper abundantly in all the work of your hands with children, the offspring of your livestock, and your land's produce. 
Indeed, the Lord will again delight in your prosperity as he delighted in that of your fathers when you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in this book of the law and return to him with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's jump over to Ezekiel. God says this, Therefore say, this is what the Lord God says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where, I have, where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they arrive there, they will remove all its detestable things and practices from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh, so they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts pursue their desires for detestable things and practices, I will bring their actions down on their own heads. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Ezekiel 36. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and, I, and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And finally, Ezekiel 18. Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that they will not be a stumbling block that causes your punishment. Throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. Again, circumcision of the heart. How are our hearts circumcised? By God. This is not something you can do on your own. Through faith. But heart transformation is where faith and obedience meet. I am not saying that obedience is the catalyst for heart transformation. It is faith that, that is the catalyst. But heart transformation is where faith and obedience meet. So I want depending on who you are in the room, you to think about some of these things. Maybe you're the person who, who does think, my good deeds can outweigh my bad deeds. Will you allow that to die today? Have you personally undergone the circumcision of the Messiah? If not, I would, I would highly ask for you to consider, is Jesus your Lord or not? Will you allow him to do a heart transformation for you today? Some of us need to meditate on what James means when he says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, which is obedience, is dead. And my question for everyone, what is God asking you to obey? Let's talk about mini-sermon number three. Baptism and heart transformation. Okay? There are many opportunities for faith and obedience to meet, and each time they do, heart transformation takes place but I specifically want to hone in on baptism as a place where faith and obedience meet. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that there is anything magical about the waters of baptism. It's just water, okay? If someone's a sinner, they can go down a dry one and come up a wet one. There's no magical properties, okay? 
But when someone has put their faith in Jesus, and Jesus as Lord says, I want you to be baptized. Again, we're, we say we're a church where the GCGC at BCBC is real. The Great Commission says, go into all the world and be baptized. Or excuse me, go into all the world baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching people to obey what I have commanded you. So if we're going to take that for real, if we're going to trust the Bible, we're going to obey our Lord and Master. Baptism is the first step of obedience that he does ask of us. We believe, we trust in him with faith, we are saved by our faith. Now we need to start obeying him. Okay? So I want to talk about a few nuggets in Scripture in regards to baptism. I don't have time to dig down really, really deep, but I want to show you some stuff that hopefully you'll then take home and explore on your own and just fall in love with God's Word. Because again, for me, these nuggets are a way for me to get to know God, to get to know his personality, how he thinks, what he asks of me or requires of me. And I mean, for goodness sakes, we're going to spend eternity with the guy. We might as well know him a little bit, right? So I love digging into Scripture and finding some of these, these cool nuggets, and I want to share one of them with you uh, today with this uh, concept of baptism. So let's read back through uh, Colossians 2, verses 12 through 14. I have them up here on the screen, and I've highlighted a few words we want, we want to touch on. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Paul says in Romans 6, talking about baptism as well, what then, sorry, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Heart transformation. For, we, sorry, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's have fun with Greek again. So having been buried with him in baptism, the word that, that Paul is using there is suntapto, which means co-buried. So most of us know scripture about being co-heirs with Christ. Once we have put our faith in Jesus and accepted him as our Lord and Savior, God adopts us as his children. I am a son of the living God. You are a daughter of the living God. You are, his, you are a prince. You are a princess. And we, because we are God's, God is our, excuse me, Jesus is our brother, he's getting an inheritance in the future, and we get to share in that inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. And here Paul's talking about this being co-buried, again, with Christ. The word united, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, that word united is the word sumphutas, which means united, joined, implanted by birth or nature. So it's the concept of being grafted, but more natural. So let's read Romans 6 again with, with these Greek words in mind, okay? Or are you unaware? Now Paul's saying to all the believers, we share this mentality together. Are you unaware that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were co-buried with him by baptism into death. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been united, joined, grafted in in a more natural way with him, in a death like his, we will certainly be united, joined, grafted in in a natural way with him in a resurrection like his. When we watch someone get baptized, it is such a pleasure to watch because we're seeing, again, their faith being put into action and we're watching a mini heart transformation take place. That person, through their obedience, is learning what it means to be more and more like Jesus, which is God's goal. His goal is to conform us into the image of Jesus, for us to look like Jesus. And Jesus obeyed God in many, many ways when he was here on this earth. Baptism is one way in which we can follow in obedience and have heart transformation. There are, again, every single time we obey God, faith and obedience meet. It's a, it's a heart transformation that's taking place. And then again, you know, being united with him in a death like this, so that we're united with him in a resurrection like this. We talked about just that heart transformation. We're becoming a new person. Every time God transforms our hearts and peels back the stone and gives us the heart of flesh. But also, as we watch that, that baptism take place, we're reminded of our own baptism. We're reminded of, of this concept of Jesus is coming back. He's coming again. And when he does, Scripture says that, the, that, that a trumpet will be blasted and the dead in Christ will rise, and then those of us who are alive and remain will join him up in, up in the sky and we will be with the Lord forever. So every time we see a baptism, not only are we watching heart transformation take place, but we're also getting excited about, hey, like, this is a promise. This is a shadow of the future that we're going to be resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected, and we're going to spend eternity with him. Okay, that's all I got. I mean, can't, can't, can't go much, much deeper than that. All right, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of, working of God who raised him from the dead. So these are the questions I want to ask in regards to this. Have you been united with Christ in this way? Again, believers, if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, asks us to be baptized, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He is Lord. Our answer should be yes. From a personal perspective, if Jesus was willing to die for me, the least I can do is live for him. And whether that's a little obedience of being baptized or a significant obedience of, of me offering my life for the, for, for the gospel's sake, Every single obedience is important. Maybe you have been baptized. What is your next step of obedience? What in your life will require faith in order for you to step forward? Because stepping outside of your comfort zone always requires faith. We should never, ever be doing anything in our own strength, power, or ability. We should be following the Holy Spirit, having eyes to see where he's moving, walking by the Spirit, and guys, every time faith and obedience meet, either there's a heart transformation that takes place in yourself, or as a church, if we're getting out there in the community and obeying Jesus, that faith that's required to obey can transform the world around us. So heart transformation. It's not about knowing more about the world through clever or smart philosophy so that you can solve your own problems. It's not about keeping a bunch of rules, regulations, or traditions to make yourself a better person. Heart transformation is about humility, surrender, repentance, faith, and obedience. 
Again, if you are here in this room and you have not submitted yourself to Jesus, your steps are going to be the humility, surrender, repentance through faith. Talking to God and say, God, you do exist. I do believe you have rules and standards, I, and, and, and I don't meet those standards. I believe that I am a sinner and that I have sinned against you. Against you. I also believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he did come on this earth. He was fully God. He was fully man. He died on a cross so that his blood could forgive my sins, and I want that. Please forgive me of my sins. Circumcise my heart. I lay my life before you. That's your first step. If you have already made that step of belief in Jesus, the next step, he asks us to be baptized. Funny enough, next week we're going to do baptism here at the church. It's a great time. If you have not been baptized and the Lord is moving your heart towards obedience in that way, talk to Pastor Bill. Bill, would you mind standing? This is Pastor Bill. He would love to chat with you. He would love to, to, to walk you through the steps to get you ready for next week in baptism. Okay? But for the rest of us, maybe we just, we've done both of those steps. Guys, we need, Jesus asks us as his Lord to follow his spirit and to obey him day after day after day. And that requires faith. It's uncomfortable. I don't do it perfectly. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I do. But every time that I can let my faith and my, and my obedience meet, I know I make him smile because I'm being transformed and looking more and more like Jesus every single day. Okay? So we're going to play some music. I want to give you guys just a couple minutes. I've talked through a lot. I want you to process with God. What is your next step? What is he asking of you? So let's just take two minutes and just in silence spend time with Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word. I pray, Father, that whatever nuggets were speaking to our hearts, that you would not let us uh, continue on throughout our day without spending time with you and submitting to you and to what your spirit is doing and working in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that this would impact our lives day by day for heart transformation as we get back to the basics, back to the gospels, back to faith and trust in you. These things I pray in Jesus' name. May you guys go in the blessing of the Lord each day as you try to obey him in faith. Thank you.